Well, if you have your Bibles, again, find uh, now Revelation chapter 3. Walking through Revelation is, uh, is challenging and it's also exciting because Revelation reminds us that no matter what happens around us and no matter how quickly things do change, that God is in control and then in the end, we win. And I'm enjoying this study so far. And as we get into it, we're going to enjoy it even more because the reality is constantly things are changing and that is the one constant that things change. People change, life changes, and the world around us is changing. But our Lord Jesus Christ is the unchanging one. And though the outward is perishing, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, the inward is being renewed day by day. So no matter what's happening on the outside of us or what's happening to us, we have this promise that God is constantly renewing on the inside. He is constantly making us more like Christ and we have that incredible hope. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read about the church at Sardis in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If you don't mind, stand again. We're only going to read six verses. If you're able to stand, then I'll have you seated. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the church says, Amen. We just sang about the amazing grace of God. And just to give you a heads up, we're going to sing about that again after the invitation. And by God's grace, we know that the church of Jesus Christ is alive and well and influencing the world. Thank you so much. You may be seated. The influence of the church is powerful, and it is salting. It is flavoring the world, isn't it? I wasn't able to be with us, uh, with the church last week, but I wanted to be, especially after the decision the Supreme Court made concerning Roe and Dobbs. I was also very encouraged by the decision the court made in defending a football coach who was just simply praying on a football field. It's absolutely amazing the influence the church has. And if you ever listen to the devil, he's going to say, we're not doing anything. The church is losing its power. But never forget that the power behind the church is the power under the church, the power over the church, and the power through the church. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 7, there's a passage where people are asking Paul, hey, what happens if I get saved and my spouse doesn't get saved? And Paul answers, if a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. This brought some questions to people's minds. You mean if I get saved and my spouse isn't, that they're going to be saved simply by proxy? 
And what Paul is basically saying is that there will be a blessing on a house because there's a believer in that home. One believer brings blessing. And the reality is the church of Jesus Christ is alive and well in the United States of America. And God is blessing America because there are Christians who are alive and well and working his works. Don't think the church has lost its power. The evidence is around us. Don't listen to propaganda from the devil's war machine that says that we are losing the battle. Oh, no. Onward, Christian soldiers. Our Lord is leading the parade, and he is winning. And all those who know him are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Hey, it might be very vogue to sit around and talk about how bad things are, the way things are going, and let's just face it. Things are seeming to be moving right now at a rapid pace towards hell. But never forget at the same time, the church triumphant, she will stand. And and the church right now is influencing the world in which we live in. And I want you to see that. Because it is very possible for the church to lose its saltiness. It's very possible for the church to lose its influence in a community. The Sardians, or the Sardians, however it is said, (laughs) were losing their influence in their culture. And the reason was that they were allowing certain traditions and other um, uh, formalities to enter into the church and to steal away from the message of the power of the gospel. Here they were, people that had a lot of work, a lot of activity, a church that everyone said, that's a great church. You ought to go, if you're in Sardis, you ought to go visit the church at Sardis. They are active involved in the community they are faithful people they always have something going on it's exciting there's a lot of young people in that church there's a lot of young people that would have been very interesting in that day because sardis was made up mostly of senior adult citizens not far from there was one of the most famous cemeteries in all the world and there there that church was experiencing great vitality and life including youthfulness and yet when the lord looked at the church he said You may see that as a church with a great reputation. I see it differently. Look at this church, beginning of verse 1. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Here's a church that was allowing traditions maybe to to rule their worship. Their missions falling in maybe into philanthropy. They had compassion on people without the gospel of Christ. Active in good doing or doing good, but not active in gospel efforts. And the judge, Jesus, comes and he says, I know who you really are. He's described here, or he's self-described as the one with seven spirits. What is that? Well, in Zechariah, we read how that the Lord has seven eyes, meaning this, he sees perfectly, nothing is hidden from him. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, we read uh, about the Spirit of God, chapter 11, we read about how that it is sevenfold. It's just simply saying that Jesus is perfectly able to judge. When we see that his eyes are moving through the church, he, has the one, he is the one who sees everything in the church, every person in the pew, and he judges rightly. He's not only the one who has the pastors who are there, he's there. Imagine the church at Sardis hearing these words. I know that you have a reputation. I know everyone says good things about you, but let me just tell you the truth of what I see, and I'm there, and I know. It's ironic, isn't it, that today the world wants to put 
Christ on trial? Could you imagine you're called to jury duty? You go into the courtroom. The criminal, the charged, is put before the judge. And before the proceedings start, the accused stands up and begins to judge the judge. Begins to ask the judge, who are you to stand in authority over me? Begins to accuse the judge of wrongdoing, of corruption, criminal activity. If you're sitting in the jury box, you know that won't go on very long before the judge takes control of the courtroom. Because the criminal, the charged, is not there to stand in judgment over the judge, but instead to be judged. And as ironic or crazy as that sounds, we live in a world where people think that they stand in judgment over Christ. The one who has seven spirits, seven eyes. He sees every part of us. There's not one thing hidden from him. And there he does what he always does, and that is he looks penetratingly into our hearts. What are our questions? What are our indictments against God? What has the enemy done to cause us to question the goodness of the Lord? Never forget the patience of God in our world and even in our church is nothing more than His grace and His good gifts. The Apostle Paul said, Do you presume on the riches and kindness of the forbearance and patience of God, knowing that God's kindness is meant not to lead you in any other direction but then to repentance? But because of your heart and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Maybe the Sardinians did not understand they didn't stand in judgment of Christ but Christ stood in judgment of them and so Christ says this it's not your reputation that matters to me it's what's really going on in your heart they may have had a five-star review on Google but in heaven they weren't verified they didn't know it remember reading the story of Harry Truman told about a fellow that was at work and got hit in the head they took him to the morgue thinking he was, he was dead, put him in a coffin, and he woke up. The man woke up and thought, am I dead or am I alive? Like, if, I'm, if I'm alive, why am I in this soft, cushy coffin? If I'm, if I'm dead, why do I have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> He's a church that didn't know whether they were dead or alive, but Christ knew. They would have thought they were alive because they would have pointed all the things they'd done, all the money they'd given, all the programs they ran, all the people they helped, all the community activities. Everything that was going on in the church would point to fruit. People would say this, it's by your fruit that you know them. And look at all the fruit these people have. They are full of fruit in that church, which Jesus, the true fruit inspector, would say, there's no fruit. How's that possible? Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is Speaking to a group of really religious people, he says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And everyone who intimately calls me by name, they think they know me intimately. They call me Lord, Lord, which is a sign of true knowledge, really knows me. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not, listen to this, prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. Now, let me just ask you a question. 
If tomorrow you got up and you pulled up a news article on a church somewhere in America and you read that they were prophesying, that they were doing mighty works and they were casting out devils, would you maybe think that church is alive? And yet I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. By their fruit, their activity, profession, commitment, they looked like they were alive. Jesus said they're dead. I think it's important to look at some themes here in order to try to understand what's happening in this particular church. And these churches that we're studying, there's seven of them in total, they represent all the churches of all ages. And so sometimes we see ourselves in these churches and sometimes we may see others. But it's important that we note what's going on here. Because the Lord is so passionate for his church. Like he, he's, he's not coming in condemnation. He's coming in confrontation. He, you don't have to go this direction. There's hope for you. Wake up. Notice the, the contrast here with names. In verse 1, you have Jesus saying, I, I know your reputation. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains. If you drop all the way down to verse 4... Yet there are still some who have a name. There are a few or a remnant in the church who have a name. Underline the word name there. Verse 5. These are the ones who are conquerors. And verse 5. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's still a few in Sardis. Verse 4 who have a name. Those who have a name before God, not just a reputation, but a real character of conversion, are the ones who Jesus says have not un, they have not soiled their white robes. They have not soiled their white robes and they walk with the Lord and they will continue to walk with the Lord. What are these white robes? Well, Revelation 22 verse 14 says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a right to the tree of life and they may enter into the city. By the gates, chapter 7 tells us that those robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, those who have white robes are those who have been washed clean of their sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's still power in the blood. Who is it that has a name? Those who've been bought with the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 1, 7. They've been redeemed with the blood of Christ. And they're the ones who conquer. They're the ones who conquer. They overcome. What do they overcome? They overcome sin. And the way they overcome sin is because they have a name that's even being willing and ready and desired to be confessed by the Father. I'm going to confess these before my Father. The Father's going to confess these, and everyone in heaven, including angels, are going to hear these names. And they'll not be blotted out of the book of life. Now, when you read that word about how these names that Jesus holds are people who wear righteous white robes, they've overcome sin, and they're confessed by Jesus before the Father, know this, they are secure forever. 
Their names will never be blotted out of God's book. In every city, in this time in which John wrote, there would be a book containing the citizens of that city. The way your name was blotted out of that book is either you died or you committed some criminal act against the government to which your citizenship was revoked, and then you were blotted out as if never to have lived. When the Bible tells us here that our names, if we have a righteous white robe, and if we overcome sin, and we have a name that's true in character so that the Lord confesses it before the Father, will never be blotted out. You need to see that this is, and very important here, a promise and not the threat of punishment. In other words, Jesus is not saying here, if you come short after putting on a white robe, after having been washed by the blood of Jesus, after you have conquered by placing faith in the conqueror, Jesus Christ, if you then come short, you're going to lose your salvation. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that those who have truly been saved have no fear of ever having their name blotted out of the book of life. Is your name in the book of life? One day the books will be opened. You'll stand before the judge. He'll not have to answer your questions nor mine. And the question will be, ultimately, is my name in the book of life? Well, there are two types of people in this congregation. I think you need to see this. It's very simple. I spent a lot of time with this. It was complex to me, this, this church. This was hard to study and, and to come up with what is going on here. But when you really get down to the bottom line, you're looking at a congregation in the first century with two types of people. And it's really hard to imagine that this church who'd not been around that long, already had accepted into membership people in the congregation who are not converted. Who have an outward profession of faith, but no real inward possession of Christ. They have robes, but they're of their own righteousness. Works, their own deeds, their activities. They're not Christ's. I think this would help us to understand a little bit what's going on. Throughout the New Testament, we discover that we can be clothed either with our own righteousness or with Christ's. Jesus tells a story of a man who goes to a wedding he's invited to. And in that day, garments were provided for all those who attended the wedding. Imagine that. Here, sir, here's your garment. This man, evidently, he had just gone, bought some clothes he liked. He said, I don't want to wear that. I'm going to wear my own clothes. When the father came in and saw that there was one without wedding garments, he said, how did this man get in here without wedding garments? Cast him out where there's darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a picture of 
self-righteousness or religion or any works that I think that I can put my trust in that's going to put me in good favor before God so that I might have a reputation, might have a reputation even before others that I am a Christian and I'm a Christ follower, but when Christ looks at me with his penetrating eyes, he sees the robe that I'm wearing, not his robe, mine. So when you look at this church, can you imagine it's the first century and already there are two types of people in the congregation. Lost people who say they're saved and saved people who really are. And it's hard to differentiate them. You can't look on the surface and see who's who. Jesus tells us it would be that way in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus told some stories, didn't he? This is an amazing story uh, about a, I think we can relate to it, about a, a sower. He said this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in this field. And while he slept, the enemy came and sowed some weeds among the wheat and then went away. And when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the masters of the house came and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest in the gathering of the weeds you also root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat in my barn. It's a story Jesus told easy to relate to it's easy to understand but Jesus goes into it further by giving us commentary on it here's what Jesus said to the disciples when the crowds left the disciples came to him saying explain to us the parable of the field he answered the one who sows good seed is the son of man the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom the weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom, out of his kingdom, and all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him here. The idea of the weeds here, you probably, if you have a, a, a King James or New King James version, have it related this way. It, it's the word tares, which means a weed similar in appearance to the wheat. Not just a weed, it actually looks like the, the wheat. This is what was going on in Sardis. In the congregation, you have true believers And you have those who look like believers and are not. Is that possible? Jesus said to them, wake up, verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your works not complete in the sight of my God. What's really going on in their hearts? Jesus says, wake up. It's the only way anyone can wake up is when Jesus says wake up. And some of you probably have the story that 
I've heard over and over again of a believer who's now saved, who grew up in church and thought they were saved and had all the outward trappings of what modern Christianity looks like. And then sitting in a church service, Jesus said, wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Your works are not complete. Why are they not complete? Because they're your works and not mine. You're putting your trust in what you have accomplished. So remember, and this is so key, look at the text. Remember what you received. What had the church at Sardis received? We're not told exactly here what it is. But knowing the context of the book of Revelation and the New Testament at large, we understand they had received the word of God, the gospel of Christ, and the the doctrine of the apostles. That's what they'd received. Believe the Bible. Believe the authority that you received from God. What do you mean? Because there were those, no doubt, who were putting their trust not in God's authority. It's the black and white teaching of Scripture, but in the gray of their experiences. Don't put your trust in what you've experienced or what you've heard from others or what someone has told you. I mean, I've sat in more than one house around a kitchen table or or on a couch and had a gospel encounter to ask someone, whether it be a child, teenager, or adult, do you want to trust Jesus only to have a family member say, no, no, don't you remember that you were saved when you were five? I've had wives tell husbands, you don't need to be saved. Don't you remember? Don't grab on to what you can't grab on to. Some experience. Grab on to what you can grab on to, God's authority, and that is his word. And if he says wake up, wake up. And if he says wake up, you can wake up and be saved because of his authority, which says all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Remember what you've received. These are people who are unnamed. They they don't have the real name of Christian, but they're in the church. They they practice the same ordinances. They've been baptized, most likely. They have taken the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. They, They pray the same type of prayers. They use the same type of language when they give a testimony. Have you ever been around someone who just got saved, and they don't know Christian language yet? Hey, hey, did you get, did you get saved? I, I mean, I, I think so. I, I, I just love Jesus now. And if we're not careful, we're listening for them to have some sort of seminary degree before we uh, think that they've been converted. And if they have all the right language, oh yeah, man, I repented of my sin. I called on the name of Jesus and was washed by the blood and have gloriously been justified. Now he's sanctifying me. And one day I'm going to be glorified. You're like, that person's saved. And you're like, why are they saved? Just because they have all the nomenclature down? (laughs) 
They probably had the same outward behavior as those around them. They showed up every week. They went out and did projects. They went out and cared for the poor. They fed those who were needy. They gave of their money. I think in their heart, though, they knew they were lost. I believe when you read through the New Testament, you find Jesus telling stories like the stories of the virgins who weren't ready for the coming of Christ, and they were dishonest, and they believed they could hide under the darkness of their own sin. But everyone's going to be one day standing before Jesus, and Jesus will then decide who belongs to him and who does not. How could this happen so early in the life of the church? I mean, it's the first century. You would think this is like, this has got to be third century, fourth century, when the church begins to get watered down with unbelievers in the congregation. Well, there was pressure for them to give in to the world around them, to give up biblical teaching of that which ran counter the culture. We know some things about Sardis. We know Sardis was like many of the cities of the first century in a very pagan world, that sexual immorality ran rampant in Sardis, and very right next to probably where many of these believers met was a temple dedicated to sexual immorality. They may have felt the pressure not to talk about difficult truths, to back away from them, maybe not to deny them, but simply let's don't talk so strongly about them. Liberalism is not always a wholesale denial of God's truth. It oftentimes starts with a desire to be liked by the culture around us so that there is no longer a strong stance for what is right and what is wrong. I don't know if liberalism snuck into the church, but somewhere along the line, they weren't holding on to what they had first received, and that was the authority given to them by the apostles and the Word of God. And since they weren't holding on to what they first received, evidently they began to hold on to other teachings that God had not given them and receiving man-made teaching. James Montgomery Boyce, who was at the 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church for 30 years, wrote this book shortly before he died about the coming onslaught of liberalism in the church. He said the reason that we're facing more liberalism and progressivism in the church, think about this, he wrote this before 2000, is that sin has not become rebellion against God any longer and his righteous law for which we are accountable, but ignorance of the oppression that is found in social structures. Salvation is defined, he said, as liberation from oppressive social structures. Faith was becoming aware of oppression and then doing something about it. Evangelism did not mean carrying out the gospel of Jesus Christ to a perishing world, but rather working through or against the world's power centers to overthrow entrenched injustice. The reality is, it's not hard for a church to begin to allow unbelievers to feel very comfortable in their congregation. It's very easy. It comes with a desire, oftentimes, that is not evil. It's not an evil desire to want to win the culture around us. But that culture 
slides into the realm of darkness and evil when the desire to reach a culture around us then accommodates the culture around us so that we don't speak about the sins of the culture as rebellion against a holy God. What I read from scholars is this is what likely was taking place in the church of Sardis in the first century. And you think that's relevant to the 21st century church? How often have you heard people talk about hell in these days? How many believers who are ready and able to sign off on a doctrinal statement that includes eternal damnation in hell are quick to doubt whether people they know who are good people and die as good people, actually as good people, go to hell. In the evangelical church today, it's just hard to find Christians who are brokenhearted over people who die without Christ. Because there's been a lot of accommodation lately. Because we know good people and moral people and religious people who have died and we think, well, maybe, just maybe, they're going to make it to heaven. But they won't without Christ. The church is given in not only to liberalism, but pragmatism, which is the, which is the action of, of just asking the question, does it work? Will it fill the room? Will people show up? What can we do to get more people in the building? The New Yorker ran a, a cartoon some time ago about two pilgrims talking on the Mayflower on their way to America. One pilgrim said to the other, religious freedom is my immediate goal, but my long-range plan is to get involved in real estate. <laughs> How easy is it for the church to forget that our work is not man's work it's not the work of the world around us our work is the work of the gospel it is so distinct the church is to be different than the world how are we to be salt if we're going to be like the world we can't when jesus said what good is salt that loses its saltiness he meant what is good what good is salt that's mixed with minerals that bitter the salt and make it no good for for eating it's not good for anything but to be cast out. A church then that mixes with the world, its worldly ways, asks questions like this, what works? What will get them in here? What new gimmick? What new marketing strategy? What is it that we can do to get the world in is a church that's on its way towards allowing and actually embracing unbelievers in its congregation. It's nothing to hear about churches today that allow unbelievers to serve in their churches. There's even one denomination that's allowed a pastor to continue to minister in its denom denomination, even though that pastor is an avowed atheist. How do you get a pastor leading a congregation who doesn't even believe in God. It starts by accommodating the culture. 
I've got to get to the end here. The end here, here's what Jesus says, repent, repent. You, you need to turn, you need to remember where you came from, what you received, and then repent. This is the constant work of any church, is to understand that we are regularly needing to repent. This is a part of our rhythm as Christians. But this word, this word was to a church that was allowing and tolerating unbelievers in the congregation, and the church needed to repent. There will be a day, one day, when all, this, all of our hearts will be discovered. When we'll all stand before the Lord, saved and lost. And there will be a dreadful judgment for those who have claimed a relationship with Christ but never truly have followed Christ. Verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is what we need to ask ourselves today. Am I alive or am I dead? Well, I don't think I'm dead because I come to church. And I give money, and I've been baptized, and I take communion, and I work hard for the Lord. Those are all commendable things. Those are all good things. They won't amount to a hill of beans if you've not been converted, washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and wear the righteous robes of Christ, have overcome your sin because you have placed your faith in the one who died and rose again and came out of the grave victorious over sin and now has given you a name that you're going to be confessed before the Father with. And you, no doubt, confess him before men. You confess him before men. And Jesus said, who is it that I'll confess before my Father in heaven? Those who confess me before men and those who deny me, I will deny before the Father. Denying Jesus is not as simple as, well, I just don't believe in him. I never knew him. Peter said, it starts with the denial of the biblical authority of Scripture and beginning to accommodate worldly philosophies around us, thinking that we somehow, by our own power, can widen the narrow road so more people can get into heaven apart from going through the narrow gate that is Christ. I want to ask you some questions here as we kind of bring us to a close. Are the demands of people around you greater than the demands of Christ on you? Do you put more emphasis on what people around you think than what Christ thinks? Do you put more emphasis on what is demanded of you uh, by other people than what Christ? I think the people in Sardis that were not truly alive in Christ, they, they put a lot of weight on what people thought about them. Is your sense of worthiness attached to your sense of effectiveness? Do you look at your own Christian life and wonder, how effective am I? Or... Are you more committed to your worship and your love and allegiance to Christ than any result that comes out of it? There's fruit that comes from serving Christ. There's always fruit from life. There's life that begets life. But is your worthiness attached to what results come from your Christian work? You remember Martha? Always busy, active, and one occasion was so active that Jesus had to tell her, stop, choose 
the better? What's the better than serving, worshiping? Are you able to work? Are you able to work for Christ without worshiping Christ? Do you remember Samson? The great champion who had a name and a reputation but lost his power, the power of God on his life and went out to fight and didn't know that the power of God had come off of him? Are you going through the demotions as you're in your Christian walk or your professed Christian walk without the power of God on your life? Is your work gospel work? Are you committed to gospel work, the work that the church can do and only the church can do? Which means this, are you faithful to the Great Commission? Or as one pastor asked, or is the Great Commission become the great omission in your life? It's heartbreaking to read some of the studies that come out by different reports, but to think that the, the most Christians in some of the surveys recently given to evangelical churches say they never intend to share Christ. Makes me wonder, are they really alive? Are they really dead? God didn't call us to a cause. He called us to a kingdom. He called us to share his name. Do you do the work of the kingdom? Calling others to repentance to Christ. Verse 6 He that has an ear, let him hear. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we've had to study this church. God, in this sobering reality that God, even in a church like this, in Sardis, that there are those who have a reputation of knowing you but truly don't. I pray if there's anyone in this room without Christ or listening online today who have some false assurance of salvation that's rooted in, in their own work or effort or righteousness, that God, they'll repent like you told us to. Turn and be saved. And I pray this for your glory.